A quick note, listener, before we jump into today's podcast, I received a lot of feedback on last week's podcast about Joe Rogan, and I wanted to take a moment and address that here. I received a number of notes from people. In fact, not a single negative note from people. Now, that doesn't mean people didn't receive it negatively, but all I have is the evidence in front of me, and that says that the notes that I got from folks were largely positive, um, almost exclusively positive, in fact, about the episode. They appreciated the fact that humanity, while imperfect, is still something that can contribute to the greater good, and that they really liked the sentiment about a single or even a series of less than admirable moments don't define a person's entire life. And that spoke something to me, and I wanted to say thank you to those of you that took a moment to reach out and make those comments. They meant a lot. I'm glad you saw what it was that I was driving at in that episode, and I will continue to take challenging people's words that are of high quality and high caliber and present them to you, because I think it's important for us to see, demonstrated in real life, that even though we may be imperfect, or someone else may be imperfect, we shouldn't be discarded to the dustbin of history for that. So thank you. And now, to the episode. This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Their crosses are quiet and a long way off, and from this remove, their influence is quiet and seemingly distant. But quietly, they are present on every fire line, even though those whose lives they are helping to protect know only the order and not the fatality it represents. For those who crave immortality by name, clearly this is not enough. But for many of us, it would mean a great deal to know that by our dying, we were often present in times of catastrophe, helping to save the living from our deaths. End quote. And that is the author, Norman MacLean. MacLean was born December 23, 1902, in Clarinda, Iowa. He died August 2, 1990, in Chicago, Illinois, at the age of 87. MacLean was one of seven children. And that was much, much more common in the early 20th century than it is today. He was one of two boys in a family of two boys and five girls. And his family moved to Montana when Norman was a young boy, and his experiences there influenced much of his writing throughout the rest of his life. He attended school at Dartmouth, and before doing so, he worked for the U.S. Forest Service in Montana. And that, of course, informed a significant amount of his writing and the number of books that he put, he put forth as well. So as I mentioned, he attended Dartmouth and became the editor-in-chief of the university's Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern, and that position was filled when he left by one Theodore Geisel, and Theodore Geisel is better known by everyone as Dr. Seuss, of significant literary fame. And McLean later attended the University of Chicago, where he earned a doctorate in English, and later served as the Dean of Students and the William Rainey Harper Professor of English there. He is probably most well-known for his book, A River Runs Through It, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 1977. But today's quote came from a book that I actually enjoyed far more, called Young Men and Fire. Young Men and Fire was published posthumously in 1992. Remember, McLean died in 1990. 
and it was about the Man Gulch Fire of 1949. The Man Gulch is located in central western Montana on the Missouri River. In 1949, a wildfire consumed a large swath of the gulch and killed 13 wildland firefighters sent to try to contain it. And the account is harrowing. McLean, to his credit, does an absolutely outstanding job of painting a picture of the events, including a detailed map and a timeline. And this can be very, very hard to do well. I, for example, have no wildland firefighting background. I've never been to Montana. Believe me, it's on the list. And therefore, shouldn't really be interested in this topic at all. But I was turned onto this book by a friend a few years back, more on that in just a minute, and it's it's one of the most engrossing books I've ever read. And it's hard to understate how fascinating this whole epic is. Obviously, this is 1949, and these are firefighters immediately following World War II. Some of these folks had served in the military in World War II, and certainly the country was still under heavy influence from that war. And McLean is researching this in the 60s and 70s and 80s as he's trying to unfold this story. And he latched onto the story because something didn't quite seem right. Something didn't add up. These were relatively experienced firefighters. At least they were under the the charge of some very experienced wildland firefighters. And yet still they were overtaken by this this forest fire and, and burned alive. And I mean, what a terrible, terrible way to die. I can't imagine a much worse way to die than than sprinting uphill as you as you come to find out the firefighters are doing trying to get to the top of this ridgeline on one side of the gulch so that they can escape with their lives and a couple do there are a couple of survivors but many do not and where they fall is still to this day marked in the gulch by small crosses and those are the crosses that McLean is referencing in the quote for today and he talks about everything from the moment there they enter the gulch they're hitting the ground, having something to eat, figuring out the plan for how to attack the fire, and then setting to work doing it. And if you're not familiar, wildland firefighting is a particularly taxing profession. Not only because of the danger, obviously, that's very, very real. But remember, wildfires don't burn along nicely paved roads with sidewalks and staircases. They burn in the middle of nowhere. And for all intents and purposes, Man Gulch is the middle of nowhere. McLean talks about how during the course of his research, the only way he could get to Man Gulch at the time, or the easiest way to get to Man Gulch, was actually to take a boat down the river and pull up alongside the shore and then walk up into the gulch. In fact, one of the researchers that he's working with actually has a heart attack later during one of the research trips, after one of the research trips, and dies in the process of researching this book. So this is rugged terrain. This is very, very challenging. And as a wildland firefighter, not only are you moving yourself through this very rugged terrain, but you're carrying everything that you need in order to do so. So if you're curious to what this might feel like, find your heaviest backpack, fill it with things, whatever you whatever you may, may like. Don't forget to include a lot of water because it's hot and you're going to want to stay hydrated. But then go grab something like an axe or a sledgehammer or some other type of tool that you may may think that you need while you're out there. Slap a hard hat on your head, some heavy boots on your feet, and gloves on your hand, and then go take a walk up the nearest building with a lot of stairs or the nearest hill by your house, and you'll get a sense of just what it's like to be a wildland firefighter for just a couple of minutes. 
Now imagine doing that all day, and now imagine doing it running for your life from a wildfire that has turned on you. The winds have shifted, the fire has changed direction, and you now realize that you're in dire, dire trouble. That's the story that McLean tells in this book. And so, while it does result in death and loss of life and tragedy, it is a fascinating account. And, as I was saying, McLean doesn't quite understand how this happened. How do 13 firefighters under the tutelage of an experienced fire crew chief just be consumed like this? How do they misjudge? How do things, how do things go so badly so quickly that it results in this massive loss of life? And in the course of the investigation, one of the many things that we learn is that time makes these investigations particularly difficult. Again, we're talking about a postmortem decades after the fact. And to be fair to the U.S. Forest Service, who conducted the initial investigation, they didn't not want to find out what happened. They did not want to determine what caused these firefighters to lose their lives. They did an excellent job with the investigation and... Ultimately, the lessons learned were passed along, which is the point. But we're talking about a few, literally three to four people, who investigated and also had to continue their work in forestry in the, re in the region. So, a couple of years go by, and available time and resources have waned, and other things rise to the forefront. And then along comes Norman McLean. He's got a wild hair. He decides that he wants to get in there and figure out what really happened. And he's met with mixed uh, welcome from different people. Um, a lot of people have moved on. A lot of people want to move on. There's already been closure. It's considered taken care of. And McLean won't take it that way. He won't leave this sleeping dog to lie, as it were. And as I said, McLean's investigation took years and years and multiple trips back to this remote location to trot over it on foot. And so infrequent is the visitation to this area in general, and I assume that it still is, that McLean accessed it by boat, as I mentioned, and was able, decades after the fact, to find untouched physical evidence of the firefighters' time in the gulch and where they sat, where they stood, where they ate. It's actually how he pieces together some of the chronology and locations of the firefighters who died on, in that gulch that day. And why this book came to my attention, I said we'd come back to this, was a friend of mine who attended a military planners course where this book was on was one of the books on an extensive reading list there. And, of course, the reason you, you might be asking yourself, well, why would military planners be reading a book about wildland firefighting? they don't do wildland firefighting, why, why read this book? And the reason why is obviously not to make them better authors. This is not a literature course. But rather, the quality and doggedness of McLean's pursuit of truth and facts is the real lesson behind this book. And you see throughout the book, this happens multiple times. And I think this is an important primer on the book, so that if you ever do choose to read it and look at it through this light, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But when McLean repeatedly reached an impossible position, based on some perception of facts or information, he backtracked to the last known good piece of information, to the point of departure, and investigated again. Even if it meant undoing years of work and trotting again up this gulch from bottom to top, in an attempt to figure out 
how it was that the lives of 13 firefighters were lost in this gulch on that day. And that was the lesson to all of those folks attending that military planner school is, as we love to say in the Marine Corps, don't fall in love with your plan or trust too deeply in quote-unquote facts that may change. And that's a lesson in and of itself. And we could stop the episode right there. That could be the lesson for today, that information evolves, that sometimes what you're initially presented with, as plausible as it seems, is not correct. And when presented with new information, especially if you're a military planner, planning a long-duration military planning exercise or for a major operation, the certain going-in assumptions may not be valid or may be found not to be valid during the course of that planning. So are you McLean in that situation where you say, okay, my information has changed, my assumptions have been found to be incorrect, I have uncovered a new piece of evidence or a new fact that causes the rest of this to be invalid, do you backtrack, even if it means undoing significant amounts of work? Not necessarily from the beginning, but from the last place where your assumptions are valid, given the new information. Or, do you stick doggedly to your idea, have you fallen in love with your plan, as we like to say, and as a result, are now operating on incorrect information, outdated information, and potentially making a bad plan? McLean didn't do that. McLean wouldn't do that. And as I mentioned, the fire claimed 13 lives in the most horrifying way that some of us could imagine, literally being chased up a hillside by a wildfire and unable to move fast enough. I mean, he talks about people shedding gear. You could find evidence of discarded firefighting equipment in a line right behind a person who was running for their very life. It is certainly a horrible way to die. They were brave men and women, and they died fighting a fire to try to protect public property and to protect people, ultimately. And here's what, again, what McLean says about their, about their deaths. Quote, their crosses are quiet and a long way off, and from this remove their influence is quiet and seemingly distant. But quietly they are present on every fire line, even though those whose lives they are helping to protect know only the order and not the fatality it represents. For those who crave immortality by name, clearly this is not enough. But for many of us, it would mean a great deal to know that, by our dying, we were often present in times of catastrophe, helping to save the living from our deaths. End quote. And we've spoken on this podcast at length before about my position that most of us will not be known or remembered for much in a couple of generations' time. And that this is not a bad thing. It's just a fact of large populations and a relatively small spotlight available for long-term remembrance. There are only so many people that can be remembered. And arguably speaking, the people who do great things and contribute mightily to society deserve to be remembered more than those of us that, that do not. And again, this is not a bad thing. Locally, in the micro, our lives do matter significantly. And McLean references their crosses. And I encourage you to take a look online at those crosses because they're spread in Man Gulch and they represent to the best recreationists such as McLean and, and others could muster the final positions that those people fell. Emotions grow and, and tears kind of start to well in my eyes when I look at them because there's just something about that. There's something about that lonely place in the middle of nowhere in a small gulch off the Missouri River 
in a not often visited part of the country, that these individuals went and breathed their last. And McLean explains in beautiful prose that for every wildland firefighter and others since their death, those individuals are present, whether they know it or not, in how those fires are fought. And it's a sad fact that often the lessons which inform the reasons we do or don't do something were learned at the cost of one or more lives. And as a military man, this strikes particularly close to home for me, specifically in the way that we train. Sometimes during the course of military training, injuries happen, folks' lives are lost. You can look and find headlines throughout the history of recorded time where that has been the case. But this permeates more than military life. This is in the foods that we eat and don't eat, the safety mechanisms that are in our homes and our cars and buildings and factories, etc. And someone, or more realistically some people, may or may not have died to learn many hard lessons that we employ today. And this, while sad, is still one way our legacies can live on. And I certainly wouldn't wish for anyone to die a death that was preventable so that somebody down the road can learn from it. But if that does happen, you'll certainly never know the lessons that were learned from your life. But they can be many, and they can be very far-reaching. And that, again, is beautiful in its own way. That is a way to be remembered. And you don't necessarily have to die as a result of something tragic to teach a lesson. You certainly teach lessons as you go, whether you realize it or not. There are people that abound in your wake for whom you have steered away from cliffs of disaster by a word or a story or an experience that you've shared with them. And so McLean teaches us many things in this book, including today's quote. And the two things that stand out to me, and we've talked about them, are how to relentlessly pursue the bare-bones truths, even when you think you already know what they are. Given new information, new shedding new light, you may realize something that you didn't know before or thought you knew before is incorrect. And the other, that our lives, though we'll never know it, can save countless other lives. And that that is a sentiment worth holding on to. That can give us value beyond the end of our days. That can persist and trickle down from generation to generation. So that, in three generations' time, though someone may not know our names, our crosses may be a long way off, as McLean would put it. But that great-grandchild, that great-grandchild of a friend who told another friend a story that you once told them, that helped save that person from heartache or pain or disaster or even death originated with you. That's a sentiment worth holding on to. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback and thanks as always for listening.